was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Happy New Year, everyone! I am so happy to be able to start off 2023 with my interview with the luminous Melissa Errico. Melissa Errico was nominated for a Tony for her performance in Michelle Legrand's Amour, and her other Broadway starring roles include Mina in Dracula, Betty in White Christmas, Tracy in High Society, Eliza in My Fair Lady, and as an understudy, Anna in Anna Karenina. In addition to her highly successful cabaret career, she has also worked around the country in One Touch of Venus at Encores, Finian's Rainbow at the Irish Rep, Les Mis on the Road, Bull Durham in Atlanta, Into the Woods in Patchogue, and Camelot at the Hollywood Bowl. And now, without further ado, here's Melissa Errico. I'd love to um, begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? I became interested in theater when I was 12 years old and I went to see On Your Toes at the Virginia Theater. I was celebrating my birthday and my parents took me to see the show and there must have been some kind of spiritual um, sprinkles in the air, some kind of twinkles following me. I don't know what happened. It was like I got struck by lightning. I think everything about that show appealed to everything deep inside me. There was a um, joy on that stage, an athleticism to the tap dancing and the jazz dancing. There was a classical ballerina in the show named Natalia Makarova. She was funny and wicked and brilliant clearly i'm brilliantly trained and the music by rogers and hart had a jazz quality to it so it was a musical with a jazziness to it it was an american musical by richard rogers who brought us carousel and you know oklahoma and other shows that may have a kind of operatic quality south pacific but this show was rogers in the way I liked it. I, he was using his talent in the jazziest way that's almost ever been done in American musicals. So the jazz inflection and the music and the witty lyrics by Lawrence Hart, everything worked for me. I loved the language, the music, the dancing, the characters, the archetypes up on stage, the, you know, the, the ingenue and the, the um, older actress i just the whole thing just lit me up so i think it's a multifaceted love affair that i ended up having with those type of th qualities in musicals wow. characters dancing jazz comedy you know it had all the vaudeville elements of a typical broadway musical comedy but it also had the sensuality of um the dance number like something called, it's called slaughter on 10th avenue and that 
was so sexy. I guess maybe I was at that age where it was the first time I really saw adult behavior enacted in a kind of artistic way, you know, not vulgar, but thrilling. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you were too young to know, but he, the dance number was so brilliantly sexy. And at one point, there's this incredible moment where she's dancing and he throw she she bends over and he's holding her with one hand and she's arching and she's dragging her fingertips behind her on the floor and her legs are kicking right to the ceiling and he's and the music's going da 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 ba da 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 i thought i have never in my life seen ecstasy turned into art like this so i think it was everything it was it was grown up and it was also playful it was about children and kids in a music school. And so it was joyful and adult. It was everything. And how did you begin to study the art of performing? Well, after that, I think I was what they call hooked. I came to learning how to be an actress. Um, I came to it already equipped with a few theatrical tricks. I was a gymnast and an acrobat. So when I went to my first drama camp, I was already rather um, intriguing to um, casting people and directors because I could flip. I could actually do flips, high kicks, cartwheels, all the way into my late 30s. Um, we'll see if my next role on Broadway, but I've always done a cartwheel in my show. I'm sort of well known for, I even did a cartwheel in Sunday in the Park with George. <laughs> I found a way for Dot to pop out of the mechanical dress doing a cartwheel. So I, anyway, so I was, I was um, a gymnast. So I came with this physical confidence. You know, I came to dancing uh, with a spunky, a spunkiness. So I started to train and dance because that was the first thing I could see needed to be learned was everything to the vocabulary of dance. And my singing was kind of natural, though I took lessons right away on Saturdays with a lady named Joyce Hall, who had famously taught Bernadette Peters. And um, uh, so that was my Saturdays were a voice lesson and multiple dance classes. Dance got a lot of attention so that I would have that vocabulary always at the ready. Uh, if you need me to waltz in My Fair Lady, if you need me to, to dance in Michelle Legrand's uh, musical, I did a can-can with multiple repeating um, cartwheels and a big split. That's probably how I got a Tony nomination. <laughs> the leftovers of junior high school gymnastics. Um, but uh, so I started mostly thinking about the uh, musical theater art form as needing to learn all the vocabulary of dancing and singing. And thinking about the characters as they came. Uh, I didn't have uh, formal acting training when I was young. I just did a lot of plays. I went to a musical theater camp called French Woods. And I was very lucky that I got uh, great parts sort of constantly. So I was given so many opportunities there to empathize with the characters, but I did it intuitively. I would play Hedy LaRue in um, how to succeed. That was the first character I got. And, you know, she's a funny secretary and she's, you know, so my goal was to make the audience laugh and be super sexy. And then I remember when I had to sing that song, where will I find a treasure? 
Um, and she was lonely and I felt for her. And so just the way a young person does, I, in, I empathized with her and I intuitive, intuited that she's not just a comic character, she's a comic character with an empty side, with an empty hole in her. And so that was my first sort of professional uh, type thing because they, all the kids were so good at that camp and I had, I had such a nice intuitive acting ability there with, with that or I, I just, so I didn't have formal acting training uh, till I was older. Um, and then I just continued with that technique of studying dance and voice and playing characters and f always thinking about them and how, if it was me in that situation, how would I feel? Wow. So I, I think because I started so young, I've always kept a kind of naturalness about my approach. I wasn't someone who came at this later and then went to college for it. I was playing Cosette by the time I was 18. I still had no acting training, but I, I read Victor Hugo's novel and I just thought so much about Cosette's life as an orphan and her mother um, uh, struggling as a prostitute to support her and living with foster parents and then ending up with this moody kind of ex-convict father figure you know what a wild life Cosette had so I didn't just think of it um, as the ingenue who's pretty and has to sing the high notes but I was reading the book so that was my my intuitive way as I got older uh, was research and reading so I went from an intuitive process to self-motivated kind of reading and um, doing my own research, historical research, and um, reading the novels. I read the novel that went with almost every musical. I have done a lot of novel-based musicals, oh. Anna Karenina, uh, Dracula, Pygmalion. There's a, a book that goes with most of these shows, um, The Once and Future King, when I did Camelot. I read these things. I actually read Julie when I was doing Passion with, for Sondheim, which is a... a a book mentioned in 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 the musical so i i feel like um my training is like everybody else's it's prismatic you know some people come out musical theater with the opera background and they train their voice first i came at it physically and then intellectually um so that's kind of my my approach i think i've always been like that i'm a sort of intuitive physical person and then kind of a nerdy intellectual type person yeah and how did Anna Karenina come about being your Broadway debut um well so I feel like you're fishing because you know there's a funny story um, <laughs> Anna Karenina came about oh actually Anna Karenina my fair lady came about through Anna Karenina but Anna Karenina came about as an audition I have to say that I think I did have an agent by this point, right at the end of college. Yeah, because I'd done Les Mis, so I had an agent. I remember the audition for Anna Karenina insofar as I showed up for it and it was a reading. And Pat Birch, who was the choreographer, is a quite famous dancer. Correct me if I'm wrong. She was in the original West Side yeah. Story. Pat Birch always tells the story because it's true, and she can back me up. I dressed like Anna Karenina. 
completely. I went over to my mother's house in Long Island. I had been, a, I was at Yale. I was an art history and philosophy major at Yale. And I went back to school. I studied and got through college quickly after having done Les Mis during college. Um, I drove to Long Island and I remember getting my mother's green dress with a high neck and it had a belt and discussing with my mother, I want to look like Anna Karenina. And she knew that she's the one who killed herself <laughs> in front of a train. And my mother is very good at, at these archetypal things. You know, she said, well, you need a cameo right by your neck. So as crazy as this sounds, I costumed it completely. Many actresses do this and they always say it's, it's a little iffy whether it's going to have good results to completely dress the character. I've done this a few times in my career, but I don't know why some auditions I'm motivated to completely dress the character. I think it's because I was so young. I was 22. I knew Anna Karenina should be older. There's no reason I should have been auditioning for that role, but it was a reading and I put my hair in a low bun. I think I wanted to show them that I understood the era and the maturity. And there was no way if they met me in jeans or a sundress that they'd, they'd believe it. You know, I ultimately played the ingenue on Broadway. So I only pulled the wool over their eyes for the reading. So I ended up wearing this whole crazy outfit and bringing leather luggage and sitting on the bench outside the audition, literally looking like Anna Karenina at the train station. Wow. I mean, can you imagine there? Pat Birch said she had to look three times. She couldn't believe her eyes. Who is this person sitting on the bench thinking she's in, um, you know, Kiev or Moscow or whatever, um, Moscow. So um, <clears throat> kind of funny. So I did the audition. I was as cuckoo as it can be. And in terms of committed. I don't know why I love that show. I love that story. It is, I'm a, it's Italian in its own Russian way. I love the romantic ex extremity of it. And the idea that Vronsky is all the answers she needs. And um, so anyway, I auditioned in full costume at 22 and I got the part in the reading and we did a staged reading where I was so lost in the character that they actually said they had meetings that maybe we should give it to her. Maybe she should play Anna Karenina on Broadway. And Ted Mann, who had created the Circle in the Square Theater, I think he felt the same conviction. They've now told me, you know, whoever's left, you know, that they had meetings about it. And she says, maybe we should have given you the part. But Anne Crum did a beautiful, beautiful job. It's just more that I had started it. And, but of course they had this wonderful actress come in who had a great success and on Broadway herself and was more the correct age. And, and she was amazing. So I was moved to the ingenue character and I was the understudy to Anna. So that's how it all came about. It came about because I took a leap of imagination. I got to the audition and I was, you know, sometimes you follow your own creativity, even if it's a little um, eccentric, you know, I, I'm a little down on the idea that there's a right way to, to behave yeah. as an actress and an actor. You do what you feel. So what I felt was I'm going to walk right into the book. 
and I'm going to live there and I'm going to sit on this bench and they're going to like me or not, but I am Anna Karenina. (laughs) (laughs) I am Anna Karenina. End of story. So I had a great time playing the ingenue and, um, I honestly, I always wanted to play Anna. So I was delighted when they asked me to do the cast album many, many, many years later. So when, when I was old enough, so I, I am the person who has recorded the part. Um, but Anne was, Crumb was great. And I never got to go on on Broadway. And one night that I was performing, and this is where I'll segue to the story I thought you were fishing for. One night on Broadway, I was diving into my character's hoop skirt. And the hoop skirt got stuck on the um, wig. And I was trapped under the hoop skirt and I was supposed to be getting dressed with all these housekeepers helping me to get ready for the ball or some ingenue-like predicament. And I was getting dressed quickly and laughing and singing and jumping through this hoop skirt and then coming out the other side and, you know, all fun things, putting on my shoes. Well, I got stuck and I couldn't get unstuck. So I sang the song under the skirt and I started cracking up because I was actually flummoxed. I really got stuck in my own Russian comedy number and it, spiraled into I think something like a almost unacceptable spectacle and the direct the the producers of My Fair Lady were in the audience so by coincidence I caught their eye because I had gotten excellent reviews they came to see me and then this whole unexpected mess happened on stage and they were charmed and that thought I was funny which was important for them for Eliza Doolittle and then I got put in the final callbacks for My Fair Lady. Wow. So that's another good thing to remember that when things are not going right, it's how you react to them that people notice. I've been told a lot that people watch how you respond to making a mistake. Like let's say if you're a concert artist, a lot of people say if you make a mistake of, uh, you're with a lyric, don't worry, just catch yourself and keep going. The audience feels so good when you don't take yourself too seriously. So that's a nice, I don't know, just because you're a little younger, I feel compelled to throw in a few wisdoms. <laughs> and so I would like to ask about your process for finding the character of Eliza and how much did you pay attention to what Julie Andrews had done and what Audrey Hepburn had done? and I paid a lot of attention to what they had done, but I was being steered toward a very specific interpretation. Right from the beginning, the director for that Broadway production had a plan, and he made that clear at the auditions. He wanted Eliza Doolittle to look like a boy. He wanted Eliza Doolittle to be tall, strong, physically kind of almost muscular, and he wanted her to be fitting in with the boys right at the top. So there was a political agenda that the, that the director, Howard Davis, had. He was a, one of the men who created the National Theater in England and worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company. He was a very, very uh, special person and a uh, left-wing intellectual and one of the great thinkers of the history of stage plays in England. The idea that he was doing a musical was very 
different than other things he'd ever done. He wasn't really a show type, you know, a musicals, cutesy type of person. He was a really a radical person. And I knew that going in. So I knew we weren't going to be doing what Julie Andrews did or Audrey Hepburn. I knew we were on new ground. Even in the 90s, this is before people were doing more radical things. Our director right away wanted to take a look at the politics in the show, the social politics, the gender politics, the Shavian ideas, and get them more to the forefront, that this girl was actually poor, not cute poor, but actually poor. Mm -hmm. And how did she survive? One of the ways she survived was by not having a little skirt on and a corset and a cute hat, but she would dress like all the other boys in the market. So she was already independent and already flowing free in the marketplace. And in fact, she had already succeeded at what she thought that what we were, what we we're told as an audience is what she gained in the musical. She already had it when it started. And what she ended up gaining in her language, she lost in her choices because she ended up in a dress and a blouse with a beautiful voice. And then Higgins says to her at the end, well, you'll marry someone or other. She says, what's to become of me? So my, my point there is that as the play progresses and Eliza learns to speak, passes as a duchess at the embassy ball, she says, what is to become of me? And Higgins says, oh, well, you'll marry someone or other. And there she's more limited than in some ways than she was when she started. Of course, she's no longer poor and she has the, the uh, comportment of a person who can make a living at the flower shop, but to think that he thinks that's okay is not okay. And so I didn't develop my character around the my predecessors as much as around the director and what he was encouraging. Now I was fresh out of college. I was really interested in what he was saying and really committed. So I think um, I think he created the character with me. He molded me in the same way that I think, from what I understand, Moss Hart had to help Julie Andrews a lot. She was so young and he had to work with her almost every syllable, every sentence to help her to find the uh, rhythm uh, of who Eliza is. I think that Howard did the same for me. He worked with me on every nuance one of the interesting things he said was that anytime an American face, like you, and because this is an audio uh, podcast, I can't do this visually, but imagine your eyebrows turning in, you know, um, as if you're feeling stress or you're, um, you're thinking. He said to open your eyes and instead of go, what? And like lean in and crunch your face, open your eyes and go, what? What? Whoa. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's, she's always up and open. She's not a stressing person. She doesn't get stressed. Yeah. She goes, you know, um, well, I, well, I want lessons I have. I've come to have lessons I have and to pay for them too, Mike, no mistake. What, what are you talking, you know, she's like, what are you talking about on her face? As opposed to, I've come to have lessons I have and to pay for them too. So that, that, that crunching forward would create a sense of stress and worry that that's not Eliza. And Howard worked with me on little nuances like that, that she would always spring to what's right and wrong. And her eyes would always be open and she would never make a stressful choice. And she'd never suffer. 
she's always not that she's always right but she's clear-minded and she says she's not strained or stressed she is looking for truth and she has a kind of spunk and the cockneys he said possess that because they have to they don't have room and time for social anxiety like upper middle class people and rich people who suffer and moan about things that poor people have to survive so they learn to to spring back well what are you talking about i was i got money i pay for it you know what i mean well i'm here you know not like but i have money i'll pay for it i'm here you know well i've come to have lessons i have i want to be a lady in a flower shop instead of selling flowers at the corner of Tottenham Court Road, but they won't take me unless I can talk more genteel. She's just, I want to be this, right? As opposed to, well, I want to be a lady in a flower shop, you know, and she wouldn't be like worrying like this and stressed, you know, see the difference on my face? Yes. You, know, you, you can see me, your listeners won't be able to, but I think they'll be able to sense what I'm saying, which is that very, very small nuances in the way I responded to things he addressed at every single turn so that I didn't bring that American uh, tendency to suffer and think of yourself. It's a kind of American thing. He says Americans are very self-absorbed and um, thinking about their own feelings, that that's a luxury that that someone cockney just wouldn't have and that it could be more entertaining and a musical too if this girl had that pluckiness so these are little wonderful nuances that he taught me and it gave me once i got the hang of it i could put it everywhere there'll be spring every year without you not there'll be spring every year without you like just worrying and you we do without you i can do i can do without you i'll be fine so there's a kind of openness as opposed to i can do without you and that crunching your face, but but a lightness, so that the whole thing was witty, and wit was so important, and not wit in terms of someone who makes you laugh, but someone who has that brightness of eye. That, he says, is not natural to American actors. So Julie may possess that naturally. You know, I didn't really study her, but I think she does possess that British brightness um, of spirit. Um, so I was young and so I did everything he said and I loved every minute of it. Every minute. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it is fascinating. Right. And there's so much about George Bernard Shaw too, you know, whether Higgins and Eliza loved each other. I know the most recent revival has her walk out completely. Now we were trying to do something very radical in our production but as the show got closer to opening on broadway the estate didn't want those kind of radical ideas it wanted a happy ending where they're together and you see now we're allowed to reinterpret things but when i did it we weren't allowed there would be so what happened is at the very end when i come back howard had it he didn't really want me to actually have come back so he made it a dreams type sequence and the leading actor playing Higgins was behind his phrenological head, which is a sort of scientific item. And I would come around the back of it on an empty stage. And it was a sort of expressionistic modern image where you realize I'm in his mind. 
I've come to have, you know, whatever she says, I've come to have lessons I have or whatever. The, and he says, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? And the whole thing was a dream. Well, as we got closer to Broadway opening, the estate got upset that it looked like a dream and they would argue and they would have a rug or a couch or a chair or a little table. And the closer we got to Broadway, there'd be one more piece of furniture like every few days because they wanted it to look more realistic. They wanted to get rid of that empty stage dream sequence feeling and make it more literal so that the audience would basically be seeing him in his study. So as the show got closer to opening, the telephone would come on the stage, there'd be a chair, a new table, and the vision wasn't fully realized. I've written about this. I wrote, I write some personal essays in the New York Times, and if you're interested in, I wrote in depth about this in an article about gender politics. Oh, yes, I read that article. It was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So you can hear some more of those uh, twisted turns of how um, we had to resist the trend at the time to give a more conservative performance. Oh. And we, were, we were hoping to have a slightly more radical My Fair Lady than we even got. But I was there for the frustration and I, I hope someday I'll get to show the world what he was trying to do. Yeah. Maybe I'll get to direct it or something. And so um, Eliza and in addition to that, Sharon and Finian's Rainbow are two roles that you played twice a few years apart. And so when you come back to a role having done it before, how is your process different? Well, someone once used the word information, that as you get older, you have more information, life information. This might be a technique people have of keeping older actresses <laughs> self-confident and, and excited about their work. Because as I do concert work and I get more and more and more in depth singing the same songs over the years, this one director said to me, you have so much more information. And I think of that when you ask me a question um, like that. Every time you come back to something, you know something more than you knew last time, or you're that much older and have a different kind of empathy maybe for the character you're playing, for the circumstances that you're in. Something like Sharon McLonergan is a character I've played at, I think in my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s. Uh, by the time I did it the last time, which did spur me to write my first article in the New York Times about aging, um, I felt almost too old for the part. Uh, I was a little frustrated to be asked to play it, to be honest. <laughs> I'm really too old for this character. Um, however, we were in the middle of the Trump elections. We uh, were looking at our country differently at the time that I played. Uh, he, he was elected right as we were opening, actually. We were looking at our country with some concern, which Yip Harburg would have been very aware of to do with tolerance, um, equality, race. I also am a mother uh, and my children were not born the first time I played the part. Maybe they were really young the second time. Is that right? I think they were maybe not born the second time and the third time I was a mother. 
see, this is the kind of thing I don't, you know, it's hard to, I don't know my own history, but by the time I played it, which wasn't that long ago, for the last time, you know, I have proper mother children, and I'm, I'm paying attention differently to the fable. The fable is how important is it what we look like on the outside? How important is it if I'm a little older playing the part, if I can still sing it and tell the story? Even from, from my own standpoint, why we judge ourselves and worry so much about our this year and that year of aging. Um, the play, of course, asks a white man to become a black man, and then he's upset. And he meets a leprechaun in the woods who was green and who lost his pot of gold. Now he's turning, he's losing his green. And they meet in the woods and the black senator, who used to be a white senator, who was a racist, he says he's in a terrible mood. And the leprechaun says, do you want a sandwich? And he says, no. Well, would you like an apple? He says, no. Well, why are you so sour? And he says, can't you see I'm black? He says, well, I was green a few days ago. Don't you find the occasional change of color interesting? And the idea, you know, that these two people meet in the woods and one is was green, one used to be white. Who cares? You're still a person, he says. Yeah. And that's the story of shifting our attitudes. Um, from inside. Well, I have children now, so you think a lot about these things so much differently. So to be a part of a fable that's so much about your worth as a person. Um, my job as a mother is to recognize someone's worth even when they're one years old, six months old, six days old, that they're there and they're, they need respect, that they have a force right away, even before they're developed. So I think a story like that, it's like a bell that rings with ever more vibration, the more you ring it, you know? So I think that getting to do Sharon, I don't think I should play it again, just for the poor audience's sake. I'll look like Sharon's mother, <laughs> but, but I think I'm thrilled I did it three times and I got to live it as a, a more mature uh, actress. And it's a show that if it took me to get it running in that little theater that they wanted me so badly, I'm happy I did it. And I think it's, uh, I was so proud that girls got to see it. So, so, you, so sometimes you get to revisit a, a character and maybe there's something going on in the world or something going on in your life that makes it, that re recommits you to it, you know, that, re that re-energizes your determination to tell the story and there are some characters I'd like to do again, huh. like One Touch of Venus. I think, I think playing Venus now as the goddess of fertility, the goddess of love, um, she's a troublemaker. And I think I could be more of a troublemaker, well, a different kind of troublemaker now that I'm uh, a grown woman. Mm -hmm. I still feel like I have the... Um, Maybe I don't, I'm, I'm not young as I was, but I think I still have the, the erotic sort of mind for it. And I think, you know, she's such a funny character. The idea that the statue of Venus is 3,000 years old anyway. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I could probably play it until I'm 3,000. Um, so 
it's an eternal, funny character, wonderful, wonderful story. So getting to revisit things is good, especially if you love the character. I love Eliza, and I was so thrilled to do Eliza again. Um, I got to do it with, with, um, with uh, John Lithgow. So sometimes doing something again is thrilling because you get a new cast to work with. And your co-stars bring out something completely different uh, than your prior co-stars. So anyway, so those are the two. Those are the two you asked about. And then one I would love to do is Venus. Yeah, yeah. So I know we don't have very much time left, but I would love to use what time we have to ask about another role you did, which was High Society on Broadway, and mm -hmm. what your process was like for that. Well, High Society kind of brings me back a little to the same intuition I had about On Your Toes, which is that it had that jazz inflection in it, Cole Porter. Um, so musically, I love swinging and I love singing Let's Misbehave. I loved True Love, the song, and I loved It's All Right With Me. So my attraction to the score was visceral and natural because it had that jazziness that I love, these classic American uh, songbook sound. The process for that was to read the Philadelphia story, to watch that movie. I did watch the movie with Katherine Hepburn and of course um, Grace Kelly in the film. Um, and try to think about perfectionism and a girl who wants everything to be perfect and who is ruthless. I don't come from upper class, so it, it, I may seem like I do sometimes. I, I, my mother always says, I don't know why you get all these fancy characters. <laughs> um, so I had to, I don't know, just imagine what it's like to have all those housekeepers and have every have have that kind of snootiness that maybe this character has a kind of coldness because she's used to everything being given to her um uh the ease of manner that a very rich person has um i'm a little more of a spunky kind of person so i had to be careful not to be too spunky so the process there was a little bit uh um, I had to watch out that some of my natural qualities might not be useful, that I had to sort of calm down, you know, yeah. my natural effusiveness or war warmth. Um, so that process started physically for me again, insofar as it helped me a lot to go to rehearsal with my hair done sort of my hair blown straight, wearing slacks, learning to carry myself with a pop, not even behaving posh, but if you're wearing beautiful things and you're not um, it just makes you behave a certain way. It makes you talk a certain way. If you sit on if you sit on a chair and you have beautiful pant leg and you it's a, a kind of ease. Um, yeah. That just doesn't come totally naturally to me. So um, while I understood that her her relationship with Dexter was over, she's in love with George, George is really kind of a bore, 
Um, and then this interesting writer comes into her life and she drinks too much at her own party. I, 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 I felt all those things, but I had to feel it as a person who um, really never wanted for anything. She never wanted for anything. So what she has to learn to be is more forgiving and that the whole world doesn't revolve around her. And I'm more naturally a striver and playful and um, the party girl. I had to let the alcohol help her, yeah. you know, because she was cold in a way and chilly and controlling. And the alcohol at the party opened up her intuition about the journalist. They had a good time and she lost control for the first time. She'd never lost control. And so it was humbling for her. And she realized a lot of things that night that she really loved. You know, she, it's like she had to have a one rough night yeah. to shake her up. So what I had to find was I had to constrain myself back so that I could open up because opening up isn't that hard for me. So the character was, was more difficult for me to play, not the easiest, though I thought it was going to come easily because the singing came easily. The, the quality of person was so different from me. I had to really work on that mid-Atlantic speech that, that they, uh, that would reflect her Bryn Mawr style education. Uh, a girl who rides a horse easily, plays tennis easily. Everything is easy for her. Yeah. She's got it all. So even while I tell the story, I have to relive the process of getting to know her. So it was a little harder, but I loved the character. Um, and though I love the jazziness of the score, the character is not a person who's letting loose until she's drunk. And then the score opened up for me more, you know? So, so interesting when this, you think it's a jazzy show, but I wasn't playing, you know, when I did White Christmas, for example, that Rosie Clooney role, I could swing the, the whole thing because she's an entertainer anyway. So she's an entertainer, so her voice would do it. But you see, Tracy Lord's no entertainer. She's a Oyster Bay girl, you know, from an upper class family, the opposite of an entertainer, yeah. almost. So every character, when you're in a jazzy show, you have to watch that the jazziness of the score doesn't take away the characterization. You know, we had a wonderful opening number in the original production of High Society which I think if we had kept, the show would have been a hit. Uh. The first 15 minutes got changed right before we opened on Broadway. And I think that did us in. The, the opening number in San Francisco, which was a big, big hit, and we ran for a long time. We were extended at the Geary Theater. My character, the, the curtain rose, and my character was on a pedestal in her wedding dress, and all the housekeepers were at my feet and they were sewing the hem and I was singing I am loved I am loved by the one I love in every way and she's just being a she's just very 
sure of herself and it's it's Cole Porter's song I am loved and it really set the right tone when we opened on Broadway the producers and the director got unfortunately got replaced for personal problem reasons we switched directors I never forget the producers saying we need a different opening because it needs to be an opening and people are excited that you're in the show and we want to know you're our star and we need an opener. So they cut that song and they had me bounce on stage as the curtain rose right off a horse in riding clothes, pulling my hat off, beautiful hair coming piling down. They changed my hair from blonde to brunette in that process so people would recognize me. And they had me singing, life's great, life's grand, future all planned, no more clouds in the sky, how am I riding, I'm riding high. And it was like a fun song. And the problem is it didn't quite set up the character as an icy person. So I always felt like it made me warm and fun and I hadn't even had any of the champagne yet. So it's something I've thought about over the years as maybe something that should not have been allowed to happen. Interesting, I've only seen one production of High Society and I think there's only been one which is on the West End in London. And I was fascinated that the beautiful actress who played Tracy Lord came out, took her hat off and she had a big dead bird in her hand. She'd just gotten off the horse, but she just shot a pheasant. And it really made that song creepy. So you thought, wow, she's singing all this, but she has this huge dead animal in her hand and doesn't even care. And I thought that was, they solved it. Because right away you don't like her. Yeah. But when I did it, you really liked me because I was adorable. And that's not right. You're not supposed to like me. Yeah. So, so those are regrets I have. And then beyond, the final question I'd love to ask you is, with yeah. all of the great roles that you've played in the theater, is there another role that you would like to play or would like to have played and maybe one that you would want to reinterpret in some way? Well, I would love to have a shot someday at Kiss Me Kate. I love it so much. I love the character um, of Kate and Kiss Me Kate. I had a chance to do it at the Bay Street Theater and I know it's been on Broadway, so I don't know where I'd get to do it, but Kate really suits me. I really, I really know I can sing that part and I know I love it. It makes me laugh. Something about that show makes me laugh. So it just tickles me and it still tickles me. So I, I think Kate and Kiss Me Kate calls me all of Sondheim's more mature characters, I'm, I'm going to say yes when the phone ever rings. I am working on a few musicals that are um, uh, either in the composer's mind or uh, be begun a process. I have the potential to work with Scott Frankel, uh, possibly Adam Gettle, a few um, uh, other composers like David Shire and Adam Gopnik who is a good friend of mine who writes beautiful lyrics. They're working on a musical about the queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, who's a very beautiful, sexy figure in history. And she had lots of really interesting relationships with the troubadours who were 
these sexy guys <laughs> who were basically musicians that no longer were needed to run the crusades so they spent time seducing the queen with music so it's a wonderful amazing uh, uh, concept Adam Gopnik and David Shire have in mind so there's a few musicals that might get made uh, in the next couple of years so I'm looking forward to that and I'm always ready for a revival of the ones I mentioned or I'm trying to think if there's anything that you know, actresses learn not to say what they wish for because one of the secrets to success um, is not to think about success and not to have a plan and maybe just see how it goes. You can't always, you know, you, you know this, you, you, you can make plans you, while God laughs. <laughs> I'll be grateful for any kind of work. I'm looking forward to acting again because I'd be doing so many uh, concerts and I've been up for some television as well. So I'm really looking forward to playing a role again and getting lost in somebody else's narrative. Well, I look forward to seeing you whatever you do and thank you again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next time when I am joined by Broadway star Stephen Skybell. Stephen Skybell just completed a highly successful run as Tevya in the Yiddish-language Fiddler on the Roof, and he's also appeared on Broadway in All Wilderness, Love, Valor, Compassion, The Full Monty, Wicked, Pow Joey, Cafe Crown, and the 2015 revival of Fiddler on the Roof. His other stage roles include parts in Trouble in Mind, Candida, Camelot, and Long Day's Journey into Night. He is also a veteran Shakespearean actor who has appeared in Hamlet, Twelfth Night, King Lear, Titus Andronicus, Troilus and Cressida, Much About Nothing, Love's Labor's Lost, and more. You won't want to miss this interview, so make sure to tune back in then, and thanks for listening.